Welcome to Series 3 of the Tim Hill Podcast. In the last two series, I've told you about my life. I've met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends. And what they all have in common is they all have fascinating stories of their own, which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Series 3. In this episode, I'm introducing my good friend, Jim. Jim's going to tell you all about himself. Jim, if you can tell me when and where you were born and describe what it was like where you grew up and the schools that you went to and the type of education that you received. It's good to see you again, mate. So I was born up on Merseyside in a place called uh, Southport, not very far from Liverpool. And you can also see Blackpool from, from the beach in Southport. My father was in the Navy, so I didn't really spend a lot of time in Southport because obviously we moved around on the various postings that he uh that he that he had spent a lot of my early life out in the far east where my dad was posted so out in singapore did my early schooling out there went to a military school in singapore my sister was born in singapore a place called changi hospital and then late 60s my dad uh, decided to leave the navy and we moved back to the uk he got a job in nottingham as a minor i started my schooling in nottingham a secondary school and a comprehensive school and um, did uh, yeah five years at comprehensive and being a a young man at the time, I decided to take myself off and uh, and join the army. So 16 years old, uh, made the choice to join the army because you think back to them days in the 70s, it was the three-day week, uh, a lot of, not a lot of employment around. Yeah, there was either a choice, go down the pit or join the army. So I took the decision and joined the army, took myself off to the Guards Depot in Purbright and started uh, junior training as a junior trooper in September 1977. I did my years training there and then was sent to Catrick to do my driver and signaler course training up there and then was posted to my regiment which was then based in Detmold a place called Detmold in what was then West Germany and um, was posted there as a as a tank driver which always struck me as quite strange that I was 17 years old I couldn't drive a car on the road but I could drive a 56 ton tank on the road um, that was always quite uh, always always find that quite amusing when I think back being not quite 18 and at the time the regiment was sent on an operational tour to Northern Ireland I was left behind with a few other people that weren't 18 and we basically ran the the rear party so we were doing them rear party duties Tim that you will remember doing it sometime in your career sort of looking after the tanks and looking after the uh, looking after the camp Uh, when the regiment returned in 78 I was allocated to a squadron so was put in a troop two troop the Blues and Rolls, the big squadron, as a um, yeah, as a tank driver. So very happy couple of years driving around Germany on them big exercises. Got qualified as a crewman, and then in um, nineteen. 19- now, can you clarify something for me here? Yeah, these big exercises in Germany. I did a few myself. We start out. We're going to be two or three weeks on a, on a big exercise. Big, I mean, everybody out there at once. And at the end of the first week, we called back in Index because the tanks have done so much damage they can't afford to run the rest of the 
Now, did you guys actually do that on purpose because you didn't want to be on exercise? No, it was nothing like that. It was um, them, some of them, I think, you know, you're talking about things like there was one called Hard Fist. I remember Lionheart, Crusader, I think, Tim, you might you might have taken part with in your with within your own unit. They were just big exercises at the time. And of course, you normally went to areas that you didn't normally train in. So these were the areas where we would of maybe for the you know the Warsaw Pact as we knew it in them days. Obviously, you went on a normal exercise. You were normally at Hona or Soltar. So yeah, these exercises were outside them sort of areas. So yeah, you were going across farmers' fields, you know, and sometimes the farmers were quite happy to see you because it meant if you drove across the field, they normally got compensation. So they normally got a new tractor out of it or something like that. So yeah, very very happy days, sort of spending time uh, driving around the German countryside on them big exercises, which were quite enjoyable um, as a young as a young man, you know, enjoying my early military career. So when them sort of couple of years finished, we. Our, our regiment got sent back to the UK. Um, so we re-rolled to uh, reconnaissance. If you like, our sister regiment, the lifeguards, they took over in Germany and we took over um, in Windsor on on reconnaissance vehicles. So there was a, a period of uh, conversion. And by that time, I'd got my first um, Lance Corporal tape. So I was, what, I think 20 years old, Lance, Lance Corporal, which was which was great. Um, obviously, a bit of money, a bit of responsibility, but um, really enjoyed it. And I uh, was also the uh, uh, troop leader's driver. So I was maybe starting to learn about tactics, you know, and picking up things about how to run a run a troop, administration duties, that sort of thing, because I was the senior driver. Yeah, and they were really enjoyable years in Windsor. There wasn't much going on from an operational point of view. We did send a couple of troops, did go to the Falklands. So I unfortunately wasn't part of that troop. So they were, they were quite quiet days. So it was very much um, learning your job, learning your trade couple of nice tours to cyprus sunshine tours to cyprus on the old un line there but they're they're enjoyable days to uh back in 1984 we re-rolled back to germany back onto the tanks in detmold and then in 86 the regiment moved from detmold to sanalaga and we re-rolled onto challenger one which had just come out then and we re-rolled onto that so there's again a period of conversion um, and by that time i was a a corporal, so we call us a lance corporal of horse. Yeah, so got opportunity every now and again to command a tank, uh, which was good fun. Probably the worst lager in the world. Yeah, good old son of lager. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was slightly different from Detmold. In Detmold, Detmold was a town, and it was really enjoyable because you could walk out the barracks um, into the town. Whereas Senalaga, you had to it normally involved a, a taxi ride somewhere down to Paderborn or wherever to go and uh, enjoy a beer. You know, I think the writing was on the wall then for the military. There was a white paper floating around, you know, defence review. And I think people realised that um, the, the army was going to shrink because um, obviously things like, you know, the the, the Soviet Union was, was falling apart um, and the future was changing for the military. So it was realised that if you were part of the household cavalry, you might have to ride a horse now and again. So I remember being marched into the colonel at the time. There were six of us, all of the same rank. And they said, right, three of you are going to the... Guards Depot as a instructor, or three of you are going to Knightsbridge, and I chose the Knightsbridge option. Yeah, went off, never ridden a horse before, so it was uh, the army way of learning to ride. You know, by by numbers, by no means a, a horseman, but I could ride a military horse, and uh, yeah, did my six months in in riding school, and then went went on mounted duties in Knightsbridge, and did two years up there, which were really enjoyable. Actually, I really enjoyed it. Physically, it was very hard, and it's it's really hard work, long hours. You know, horses need looking after every day of the week. You know, so you're, you're either cleaning your kit or you're looking after your horses 
Um, and of course, as NCO, I had other duties as well. So quite a busy period. But I was very lucky being up there as an NCO. It was probably easier than the troopers. Yeah, I, when I was working in London Central Garrison, I, I used to go up and have meetings at Knightsbridge with the welfare team up there and, and to see what those guys were going through. Yeah, I'm glad I went to the, <laughs> that way. Yeah, it is, it is hard work, but it is enjoyable, you know, and, um, you know, socially it was great to be posted in the centre of London, you know, you're, you're in Knightsbridge, your corner shop is Harrods. Um, so, yeah, quite an enjoyable time. But uh, back end of 88, I was, uh, my two years were up and it was time to go back to regimental duty in um, in Germany. So, yeah, posted back to Germany. I went on my crew commander's course. So that was great. Extra five pound a day. Uh, and was a crew commander. Uh, although after a short period on the tanks, I was posted to recce troop because uh, each tank regiment in them days had their own recce troop. So I was back on CVLT, but out in Germany. So really, really good job. And every year you spent time in Canada. I do remember trying to map read in Canada back in the day, really testing your map reading skills uh, as, a, as a commander of a, a vehicle. Yeah, it was really, this is all before the days of GPS, of course. Um, so really interesting days and I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but in 1990, it was that turnaround again that we had with the lifeguards. They they took over in in Sanilaga, and we moved back to Windsor to go back on reconnaissance. I got promoted again, so I was now a troop call of horse, as you would know, platoon sergeant Tim or a troop sergeant. Yeah, so I had responsibility for uh, you know sort of 12 guys and four vehicles from an administration point of view. And again, really really happy days. A lot of training on Salisbury Plain in our reconnaissance role, element of 16 Air Assault Brigade by then. So really good, you know, lots of trips to exotic places sometimes being the rec- recce element. So really enjoyable. A couple of times being strapped in in a, in a herc in, in our vehicles and doing them sort of tailor ins- insertions into various airfields around the country. So enjoyable times. Yeah, after a couple of years, I um, needed to move on. Uh, normally, they like troop cut horses to do two jobs. And um, yeah, I was offered the opportunity to go back up to Knightsbridge and become a troop three bar in Knightsbridge. So took the opportunity and went back on the horses. A couple of years back on the horses, doing them sort of things of trooping the colours, stay home in Parliament, all them sort of ceremonial things, um, which was was really enjoyable. I think it was in October or September, they, they pulled me in and said, yeah, you're going to be needed to go to Bosnia. I remember doing the state Odom of Parliament in the beginning of November on a Tuesday morning. And then on the Thursday evening, I found myself in Gonifakouf in Bosnia, running the squadron ops room. B squadron were attached to um, uh, the Royal, uh, Royal Highland Fusiliers. So loads of screaming jocks. And uh, it was a really interesting six months out there in Bosnia with them. Just what you need. <laughs> <laughs> Thoroughly enjoyed it. Made some good friends, actually. Um, still friends to this day, actually. Uh, came back off that, went on some well-deserved leave. And when I went into work at the end of my leave, in my pigeonhole was a posting to the um, Royal Yeomanry, so a reserve unit as a permanent staff instructor. So, yeah, so off I took myself off to Swindon. The squadron at the time was equipped with a vehicle called the Fuchs, which is a chemical reconnaissance vehicle. It's actually a German vehicle built by Titian Henschel. Six-wheeled, great big 20-ton beast of a vehicle, which is, uh, as you would expect with a German vehicle, very, very efficient, never breaks down, and has got a lot of equipment in the back that obviously can read chemical signatures. So our role, or the squadron's role, was to go forward um, for the formation and check the um, whether, or check and confirm whether um, chemical weapons had been used. So really interesting because of the role, 
Um, we did a lot of work with the Americans developing the tactics. So I was lucky enough to be sent to America on numerous occasions, training with the American Chemical Corps out in a place called Anniston in Alabama. So really interesting three years. And it, for me, it was um, it was one of the things I, I'd always been told that and and heard that being posted to a um, a reserve unit was a real cushy number. And actually, it was probably really three years hard work for me because <laughs> not only were we delivering the training at the weekends and during the annual camps, but we were also in the background developing the um, the tactics that we used, which which included, you know, writing things like lesson plans for the driving and maintenance type of thing, which was my role within the squadron. Yeah, and developing the tactics. So it was a really busy time and po- on, you know, on top of all the other duties we had. Did my three years. Um, I picked up my warrant officer, so returned to regimental duty. And I think because of my skills in that sort of training environment i was given the job of training one officer for the regiment and my first post as a warrant officer but that was very much also double-hatted as the intelligence warrant officer so i was sent off to my first visit to chicksands um tim place we know well to be to do my um the old brick course brigade warrant, uh, brigade intelligence officers course so yeah got into that world as well and that was followed by a very busy period for the regiment deployments to canada and we were very much developing that deep reconnaissance role then for the regiment. Very much was a forerunner to what was going to happen in the, in the coming years, obviously. So a very busy period for me um, as an individual, but thoroughly enjoyable, obviously, being a warrant officer at regimental duty. It's something I always, you know, it was my sort of aspiration as a young trooper to become a, to become a corporal major in the regiment and really enjoyed my, my regimental duty there. So this was then coming towards the back of my 22 years as what I sort of call regimental service. I was sort of getting ready to move into that sort of resettment period, um, you know, booking my resettment and all that sort of thing. And I was I was called in to the office of the colonel, uh, a guy called Paddy Tabor, who was colonel at the time. I hadn't boarded high enough or I wasn't commi- uh, considered for a, a commission, but I think he still thought that I could offer the military something. So he put me forward to what, used to be called then the long service list. I was offered a couple of jobs, which I didn't really think were suitable for me. But then a job was offered to me as a a training war officer in the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. And it suited me then with, you know, just recently married, considering starting a family. I thought, well, you know, a couple of years in Sandhurst would be quite nice. It meant I wasn't obviously doing operational tours, but um, it was a worthwhile job. Because I know that that two years turned into five years, and I spent five years as what they call the excise warrant officer in Sandhurst, which was absolutely f- uh, a fantastic posting. It was my only regret from my regimental career was that I did I did have the opportunity a couple of times to to be posted to Sandhurst, and and I sort of um, turned it down. I wish I hadn't actually, but so getting there and seeing how that place worked, uh, which is a real special place, real um, special environment and culture. Was, was absolutely fantastic. And I, and I thoroughly enjoyed my five years there. Very, very busy. You know, it's busy for the cadets. It's busy for the staff. Yeah, so I'd spent five years there. It was getting towards the end of the five years and I, I needed a break. And I thought, I'll tell you what I'll do. Um, I'll ask the, the commanding officer if I can, if I can move on at the time. Uh, so I went in there, tabbed in, and he said to me, oh, no, Mr. Evans, you need to stay. I'm leaving. The regimental Sergeant Major's leaving. We need you as Mr. Continuity. However, he did allow me to get posted. I got posted to uh, something called the Compulsory Drug Testing Team in Headquarters Army, which then was based, well, part of it was based in in Uphaven um, and spent the two years, uh, the next two years, traveling around the world um, running the CDT. Yeah. So for a, cu- a couple of years, I was 
to put it in a finer point, the chief piss taker of the British Army. <laughs> so, um, rubbish job, but great travel. Yeah, opportunity to travel to some fantastic places, you know, Brunei, Nepal. Yeah, so really, really good. Um, Kenya. Woolwich. Great places. Yeah, Woolwich, <laughs> London. Yeah, you name it. Rubbish job, great travel. And then towards the coming towards the end of that posting, I was offered the role of sergeant major for this thing called 15 PSYOPs, which I had no idea what it was. And I went off to Chicksands to have an interview with the adjutant, uh, the commanding officer there, a guy called Ewan Lawson, a guy you know well, Tim. I do. Yeah, I was shown around by uh, John Harden, again, someone that you probably know quite well. And John was showing me all this stuff that was, was his job. And I was a bit concerned. I thought... Blimey, I'm not really equipped for this job. So he showed me around for a couple of hours and then I got sort of put in front of the adjutant and I sort of said to the adjutant, listen, adjutant, I'm not too sure I'm the right man for this job. I think you wanted a salt major. I'm not really up to doing what Mr. Harden does, you know, Mr. Harden, what he's up to. And he said, no, 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 don't worry, Mr. Evans. We've, we've got something different planned for you. This organization needs a salt major. So just as we were having this conversation, the door opened and, and in walked the wing commander. Mr. Lawson. And he said, introduced himself and said, right, come on into my office and we'll have a chat. And he said, right. And he told me the problems of the unit at the time uh, and his vision. And I said, I think I'm the man for the job. So I accepted the job and was posted there. And yeah, as you know, Tim, um, it was a really interesting unit. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The opportunity arose for me to deploy on Herrick 9, I think it was. My memory served me right. But anyway, uh, which I thought was great for me because then I got a bit of ground truth for the teams out on the ground. Um, I didn't do a, f a full tour, but it was great to get out there um, for a few months, learn the, you know, the, the, the stuff that was going on in theatre, the, the the sort of the way we were treated by the brigades, um, which was all very useful when I got back. I was on Herrick 9. Yes, it must have been 10 I was on then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was on 10. It was on to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 10. So it was great. It was ground ground working for you to take over there yeah but it was great for me to get out there and be part of it yeah and learn some ground truth i think that was very important and also from a training perspective was shaping the training so it was it was more suitable i think for the teams that were that were deploying because i think before there was always a bit of what what do we train for because we didn't really know what we we're doing on the ground but i think as we went through them rotations we learned didn't we lessons learned and things improved you must you must have been earlier than that you must have come in on you must have gone out on herrick seven because no no it was herrick herrick 10 herrick 10 yeah yeah that was my first deployment We'd had a pre-deployment packages in for for teams um, from around about Herrick Herrick five, I think we were. Yeah, we, we we had, but I think it was very much led by, as you remember, Tim. It all depended on the strengths of who was commanding the team and what they wanted for their team to do, rather than the brigade setting what the brigade wanted from from the um, the PSA. So I think that was always that was always interesting. Um, and that so I can remember when, when, when I went, cause I was on the training team for it and we had, I think we had two or three infantry officers come through and mm -hmm. wanted to do it on an infantry scale. So what, what their idea was that we, we start the, the, the training six months prior to deploying, we would go down to the, the, the brigade or the division that we were supporting, find out what the commander wanted, what his ideas were, and then we'd come back. And then we'll start the training program, but we would link in with their 
um, exercises. So we were going into the headquarters. We people knew us by the time we got to the ground. But our package started off with a, a, a basic weapons handling skills, and we go down the ranges for a fortnight, and we do a full range package of starting with a pistol, the rifle, the uh, mini guns, the GPMG. Yeah, all the all the op four things you had to do. Yeah, yeah. So a good grounding in in all the weapons skills, but then we came back and and my particular role was teaching people the radio in a box, wasn't it? Radio in a box was my baby, but also my print background. I was able to to teach people on the print side what was expected, what they'd like to get when they get to theatre. I think I think my role was to basically was twofold in that was obviously the uh, commanding officer wanted feedback on 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 the issues of of not only the interface between the brigade and and the and the team but also the 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 things that the individuals need to do. So you're absolutely right, and that's a really good example, Tim, where someone like yourself, you know, had the radio skills, but you also had print skills as well. So that cross contamination was really useful in in a in a team, wasn't it? That you could everyone could put their hands on. So you weren't just an an expert in one field you could you could help out the print you could help out uh, with the other stuff as well and i think developing that for the for the psyops course was very important as well so you know making sure that was fed into the psyops course so we were you know getting people up to speed when they were arriving at, at the unit so they were then in a position when they started the op for training with that leading with that brigade time that they they could concentrate on that and they already had the re- requisite skills so yeah it was really and as, and as you remember it was a real high high tempo job but really enjoyable job and of course in the background you've got all the normal sort of stuff going on with the j1 and all that sort of thing people's careers and all that and and all that so i thoroughly enjoyed my my time there with with two i've got to say two real good commanding officers first ewan lawson who i think was was very much focusing on the structure of of the unit making sure that was correct and then, you know, secondly, Steve Tatum came in, who was a, a Royal Navy officer. Steve was was very much in, indoctrinated in that influence operations, having done previous roles, you know. And he was very much um, at the sharp end of that, you know, doctrine led within the military with that sort of thing. And that was his, very much his focus as well and making sure that we had a foothold in, in that as well and how that was written and how that was developing. So they, they, were, they were fantastically interesting times. And of course, what we saw on writing on the wall was, obviously coming down down the track was the establishment of 77 brigade and and how that was going to move forward and how you know obviously r15 psyops was sort of swallowed up by that 77 brigade and how it moved into that um so that was an interesting time for me and and i was very much i was posted sadly before the end of that it it was all coming you know the move was coming it was uh, plans were starting to get in place for our sort of move and the expansion of the organization before all of that i came back in 2009 and and then I, I got posted off to London Central Garrison as a welfare. You did indeed, yes. Yeah, yeah, of course you did. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. I missed that area of growth with the unit, which is a real shame. I'd like to come back and, 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 and gone with it. Yeah, because I remember you, going from, you went from an S-type to a, a Veng um, engagement, didn't you, I think, something like that? No, I went from a, a FTRS full. FTRS, right. Uh, an FTRS home commitment yeah 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 there's that little bit of difference but yeah absolutely absolutely so i yeah i was i was back on the um 
I was sort of back in this sort of, um, you know, phoning up Glasgow and finding out what was next because my replacement, unlike me, was a, you know, he was a guy that was in his 22-year career. You know, he was a guy that was on a career path to become an RSM. So um, they decided, Glasgow decided that having, um, dare I say, an old and crusty like me in, in the role was was not what they wanted for the future. So um, I, I was in the sort of, like, looking around for a job. Sadly, done a couple of roles as a notification officer uh, for the brigade. And I also did a visiting officer's role. Now, that led, interestingly, uh, I, I, I did it. And when I'd finished, a really nice lady called Karen Horn phoned me up from headquarters army and said, look, I want you to come down and deliver um, a one hour presentation on how you dealt with being a one off, uh, a one officer who delivered the vis- visiting officer to a family, you know, uh, their relation passed away. So I said, yeah, absolutely. So I, w- I went down to Amport house down near headquarters army um, where the chaplains live or, or did they've moved on now. And I, um, yeah, I delivered this presentation on to this course. They were doing the, what, the visiting officers training and sort of said, you know, gave them sort of pitfalls and that. So it was a really interesting little presentation, mainly Q&A. Uh, went to the bar um, at lunchtime and bumped into an old friend of mine, Mark Kingston, who was running at the time something called the, tra- the Trauma Risk Incident Management Team, TRIM. So we got into a discussion and I sort of said to him, uh, you know, he asked me how things were, what I was, what I was doing next, you know? Um, and I said, oh, well, I, I'd been offered a, a job as the brigade training warrant officer for the 16 air assault Colchester, which really didn't, didn't suit me. I wasn't, wasn't looking forward to being one of the few household cabinmen attached to the, <laughs> to the 16 air assault air brigade, you know? <laughs> so I, I wasn't a job I was really looking forward to. So he sort of said to me, he says, well, listen, I've got a, a space in the team um, that I think you could fill you know, if I can swing it with Glasgow, would you like to come and become an instructor on the team? Now, prior to that, obviously in my role at 15 PSYOPs, I'd been a trauma risk practitioner and I'd also been the coordinator for the unit. So I'd ran the, um, uh, the training uh, and I made sure the paperwork was done for all that sort of thing. And obviously being the SOP major, you're very much tied in with welfare, Tim, as you, as you know. Um, so I had a sort of background in that, of course, um, so I, yeah, I jumped at the opportunity and I, I, uh, back of 2012, I joined the trauma risk incident management team, trim team based in Camberley, uh, within Sanders, which was, which was nice to go back there. We were based in what they used to call the former staff college building, which was where the headquarters, the army medical directorate was based. And we were under their umbrella. We weren't medics. No one was medics. We were from various arms of the army, a team of eight warrant officers, um, led by a led by a senior major yeah and I did my training and it was it was really good and, and off we went out and of course it was at the heights still of Herrick and Telic were still going on so we were delivering training mainly to brigades and units that were getting ready to deploy so training in the back practitioners and their managers up but really interesting training uh, and really enjoyable I also at the time did some other training around bereavement. I did some uh, workshops with the Padres around list- listening skills and also became what they know as a mental health first aid instructor, MHFA, so mental health first aider, um, became that and then became an instructor in that because there was a, there, there still is, I think, a military version of that. So I was also delivering that training. So the next four years towards the back end, this is now very much towards the my 55th birthday, um, when I was going to get handed my pension, we're very much in that training element. And of course, they knew down um, to London a few times. 
to deliver that trim course to we did indeed Tim. yeah yeah we did Tim. um and i became the uh, trim coordinator for the garrison that's right which was a big job yeah and and we the one and only time we actually had to put it into real practice fortunately was just after we'd done a course with We'd completed the course about three or four weeks beforehand, and I'd, I'd got about 20 guys across the garrison who were qualified. Trained up, I remember, yeah. To be practitioners. And one of the, some of the guys were out on a run, and one of the guys collapsed just off the Knightsbridge, as happened. Yeah, in one of the parks. I do remember that, Tim, yeah. We got the guys in after that because it was quite traumatic for the guys because I think he died. Actually, oh no, they actually saved him because that's what happened. Fortunately, because it was right opposite Knightsbridge, they they were able to get him in there. They they got him on some life support. The paramedics came in and got him away. But he was on like a ventilator, wasn't he? Wasn't he on a ventilator for a long time? Yeah, he was quite poorly for some time. So so it was decided at Garrison level that we would we would put the trim into place just to protect the guys that had seen the incident and anybody around it. So I put the team together. Uh, and we interviewed everybody at the 72 hours again, uh, sort of four weeks later, and then at the three months, and then I submitted the paperwork. And as far as I'm aware, nobody's suffered from seeing that incident. And that's that's a really good example, Tim, of where um, trim was used in a non-operational role. Of course, at the time, um, the majority of trim was done operationally, so whether it be um, Afghan or, or in Iraq. I first saw it in Afghanistan. I was in with three commando brigade. I was in a forward operating base up the Sangin Valley, and, and there'd been a big incident. Some guys had been out on the ground, hit with an IED. I was stuck in this place for, for a few days, setting up one of my radio in the boxes, and a trim team came in, and they were going through the, 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 the 72-hour process with the guys who were affected with it. I mean, I, I, I myself did risk assessments when I was on my Herrick and I, and I thought it was really useful. So I was, I was a big fan of it. I thought it worked. I thought it was a really useful thing to have in place. So, and, and I think obviously get, getting an opportunity to work on the team, um, uh, delivering it and, and sort of putting that message across to people, I think. And I, and, you know, I think nine times out of 10, most people accepted it, that they, you know, it was better than nothing, you know, and it, and it was worth doing something from a psychological point of view. As I was getting towards of my uh, end of my military career, obviously looking ahead for the future, I um, one of the guys I worked with, who actually he was one of the guys who set up trauma risk management in in the military in the army, um, a guy called Richard uh, Dorney, a Grenadier Guard. He was working at land at the time, um, and he had responsibility for uh, lots of different hats. But it, one of his hats was that he was doing the recovery process for people as well. He had a great interest in that trim, obviously setting it up. It was really strange. We there was a because I think it's probably a secret operation. But anyway, there was an operation going on in in Africa. Let's say I won't I won't tell you the place, but it then involved me and him getting flown to Kenya, um, put in a five star hotel. And basically debriefing people who had been doing work in Africa, who'd actually been exposed and been involved in some scary stuff uh, and quite traumatic stuff. So what they were making sure, Joint Headquarters were just making sure that these people were all right before they were flown back to the UK. So it was, it was quite nice. We were put in this very nice hotel in um, in Kenya. Yeah, so our role was to bring them back to the hotel in Nairobi, uh, wine and dine them. And then the next day, just make sure they were okay. So that, that was like a, a debrief period making sure so 
not not maybe a risk assessment in the true sense of the word, but maybe just a, um, a conversation to make sure they were all right, discuss any issues they were, and give them some education that if they started to struggle, some things that they could do. Sat that evening by the side of the pool with Richard, as everyone knows him and his friends and in the military, Skid is his nickname. And he said to me, he said, you know what, when I finish next year, I'm going to set a company up and I'm going to deliver this type of training out in the civilian world. And he says, when I do that, you can come and work for me. So I left the military, gave him a call, and I started working with him. So I do some work with him now, delivering trauma risk management and and lots of other training around mental health. I also became in a what they call an associate tutor with Mental Health First Aid for England. So I deliver a lot of training for them for their corporate clients. And I also do some independent work for myself where people just get in contact through LinkedIn or or friends of a friend type thing. So I, I do a lot of that type of work. I um, was very lucky in that some people that I obviously worked with when I was at 15 PSYOPs, obviously we're delivering some of that work out in the civilian sector. So I had the opportunity to go to Iraq and deliver PSYOPs training out in Iraq, which was absolutely fantastic. So what we normally did, we uh, we would fly in and deliver two or three week course and and then fly back so you weren't sat out there for six months like back in the old days so normally stayed within a secure compound with the americans so it was good food you know good good wi-fi so it's slightly different doing an operational tour but really good fun and delivering psyops both operators courses um and uh you know the uh the sort of uh, management course planners and target audience analysis courses i didn't get heavily involved in that. I, I more delivered the operators um, type course, really. But that was really good. Also delivered because I think it'd been realized that the Iraqi army didn't really have the level, the levels of instructor ability that we maybe have in the British army. So um, there was me and a guy called Billy Brenham, I think you might might have heard of in, in the cycles. Little Billy. Little, little Billy, again, a Highland Fusilier. Yeah, I can't understand a word he says. Jockeys. And... Uh, but obviously the training's all done through an interpreter. But yeah, so uh, we used to deliver, me and Billy, we used to deliver the train the trainer course. So that was really interesting work. So get in, and they were quite senior Iraqis as well. So you're talking, you know, captains, you know, colonels sometimes, getting them to deliver lessons, you know, principles have been a good instruction. Like, that was really interesting work that me and Billy used to do. John Mc- McPhee. Yeah, John was a good mate. He was in radio. Yeah, so him doing he was his speciality, as you remember, was um, was radio in the box as well. So yeah, great to work with these people. Obviously, I knew as well from my days in Cyprus. So they they, they were fun times. Unfortunately, that all came to a a bit of a halt in 2019 when uh, the security situation in Baghdad slightly changed. I think President Trump had a lot to do with drawing down the troop levels and that sort of thing. Um, So it was on a sort of downward trend, and then. I think obviously because of COVID, it stopped over 12 months ago because of the risks of traveling and that sort of thing. So I've not been back there for quite a while, but that was enjoyable training and slightly different from what I deliver in the UK. So really interesting times. And, and obviously, like like most people, a lot of the training that I deliver has been switched to online. So it's been a whole new world for me, you know, learning the vagaries of IT I'm not quite as switched on as you, Tim, as you as you know. So, you know, learning all that sort of Zoom and Microsoft Teams and delivering on them different platforms has been really interesting. But 
I have been really busy. It's really picked up, I think, as organizations, um, particularly with the NHS, doing a lot of work with the NHS at the moment, particularly around trauma risk management. So I think the NHS have realized that you can compare, you know, people in ICUs, staff manning them emergency wards with soldiers on the front line. And of course, that that risk to exposure to trauma and, and death and casualties you know, psychologically is going to have a great risk on people. So doing a lot of work now with with the NHS, but also with the other emergency services as well as they deal with this pandemic. So really interesting work. Yeah, so I guess that paramedics are are real key guys, police officers that are on the beat, or particularly the traffic officers who are first on the scene uh, of horrific crashes. Fire service, again, I guess these guys all experience this sort of trauma uh, and they that sort of just to sort out their own mental health issues the trauma risk training was very much based um in the military that from king's college but it's now expanded out into them emergency services so i think it's been my experience the the fire service seemed to be very well versed in trim and how trim works the police it depends on the constabulary so some some have it Others have other things in place. So I, I did some, my last face-to-face training, which is in the sort of summer, was with the Cleveland Police. That was a face-to-face training. So we did some practitioner training. We also did some management training as well with them. And I think now there's there's been a realisation that this would be useful in the NHS as well. So I've I've done some work with, through Richard Dorney and, and his company, uh, delivering to the East Kent, Sussex, Hertfordshire, other ones down the Southwest as well. So, so yeah, it is spreading in the NHS. And they are they are taking that that on board. So yeah, the police. I think it depends which constabulary you, you're you're in, whether they have trim or not. But they all they all have psychological well being in place. Whether it's trim um, is another matter. Yeah. So it, it's sort of spreading out. Interestingly, when you look at the the ambulance service, I think they've not quite grasped it yet. It's um, I've done a bit of work with some ambulance trusts. And some trusts that, that deal with ambulance services, but yeah, not 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 a great deal. But I think it's something that again they're waking up to. So a bit like when it's spread in the army, it's starting to that trauma risk management is starting to spread out within the emergency services. But a lot of my other work as well, my mental health work is with just normal companies that just are recognizing that their people are under pressure and stress with homeworking, you know, worries and anxiety levels about the pandemic. So yeah, doing a lot of work with both private and public organisations around this. So really interesting. Brilliant. Okay then, Jim, I think uh, we'll look at winding it up there. So it's been really, really great to chat with you again. And so, well, well, once this pandemic's all over, we'll have to get together for a beer. Well, I think you owe me and my son a go in your boat, actually. Probably. (laughs) You owe me a day out in the Solent. So long as it's it's nice, not too windy, because I don't like it too rough, Tim, as you know. We'll pick a really nice day. We'll get a nice sort of force four from the north, so the sea's flat, but the sailing's fantastic. I don't know, cows or whatever, and I'll, I'll buy the lunch or whatever. There we go, up, up the Medina to the Folly for lunch. How's that? That was really, really nice. Yeah, my my, my son absolutely um, enjoyed that day out. He did. Um, yeah, he, he really enjoyed that. He, he found that a, a fantastic experience, getting out in a boat. He must be getting a big lad now. Yeah, he's shooting up, mate. Yeah, yeah, he's... Um, 
Yeah, unfortunately, he's just finished a period of isolating, unfortunately, because I think the household that had come in contact with something. So he, he spent some time um, isolating, but um, hopefully I'll get to see him uh, next weekend when he's finished his isolation. So, yeah, yeah, he's shooting up, mate, um, like they do at that age. I don't know what he's getting fed, but he's uh, he's getting tall. So he's going to be a tall lad. Good good guardsman in the making, I think, maybe. All right, then, Jim. I'll call it uh, call that, and thank you very much for your time. Talk to you again, Tim. And um, yeah, it's been nice to catch up. And uh, remember back some of them happy times in uh, in Chicksands that we had. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, take care. Thanks, Jim. We'll catch up very soon. And remember the old saying, stay low, move fast, and watch where you put your feet. Well, that was fascinating. I hope you found it fascinating as well and enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends. If your podcast app allows please put a review and rate it as this would help me massively thank you for listening